0: All right, well, good morning, Tri-Village Church. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Will Franco, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it's such a blessing to have you here with us. And uh, this morning, we are continuing our series entitled The God of Promises, And for those of you who were here last week, you know that when we began this series, we said that we are going to take 10 weeks and we are going to look at the promises of God. But we said that the reason why we named this series the, the, the God of Promises and not the, the promises of God is because we wanted throughout these 10 weeks to focus on God. And, and and the reason why is because a lot of times when you hear a sermon series or a devotional or you read on any anything that you read on the promises of God, almost always the focus is entirely on the promise. And so what I want to do this morning and what I want to do for the next few weeks is I want to make sure that we are looking at the God of promises and not just the promises of God. Because if God is not the one who makes the promises, then the promises don't mean much. Amen so that's what we're doing, and for those of you who were here last week, you know that we began the series by looking at the first promise, and what I said was probably the most important and foundational promise, which was the promise of pardon, the promise of salvation. And what we brought up was that the reason why that was the most important promise was because if that promise didn't come first, if that promise wasn't the, the foundation, then we really wouldn't be able to access and experience all the other promises, we looked at last week that in 2 Corinthians it says that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And so if you're not in Christ Jesus, then the promises really have nothing to do with you. And so we began last week by looking at the promise of pardon. And this morning we are going to be looking at the promise of providence, the promise of providence. Now, a lot of times when you think of providence, you think of Rhode Island, right? Like you don't actually think of God when you think of providence. And so the reason what, what I want to do before we even jump in this morning is I want to give you a, a definition, a working definition, a biblical definition of the word providence so that as I use the word providence throughout this message, you can know exactly what I mean by it, Okay because here's the thing about the word providence. If you're here and you're kind of new to the whole God thing, the whole Bible thing, then you definitely don't know what providence is. But even people who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, if I were to pass out no cards and ask you to define the word providence, if there's 150 people here, I would get 150 different definitions for the word providence. And so what I want to do in order to lay a groundwork is I want to give you a definition for the word providence so that as I use the word, you guys know exactly what I mean. Okay, so the definition that we're going to be looking at this morning comes from the Baker Evangelical Theological Dictionary. Okay, so that, that's an important dictionary, as you could tell by, by all the words that are involved in that. Uh, so what I want you to do as you read along with me is I want you to uh, focus on the parts that I've underlined because that's what I believe really explains the word providence. Here's what it says. It says the word providence comes from the Latin word providentia or Greek provenia. Or Here's what it means. And means essentially, listen to this, foresight or making provision beforehand. Okay? So, so, so the word providence, it means God making provision beforehand. Then it says, when applied to God, the idea takes on a vastly larger dimension because God not only looks ahead and attempts to make provision for his goals. But listen to this but infallibly accomplishes what he sets out to do. Now, the reason why I underlined that part is because this is what differentiates God from any other person. All of us make plans, right? All of us look ahead and we attempt to make provision for our goals. But the difference between God and us is that when God looks ahead, he infallibly accomplishes what he sets out to do. In other words, whatever whatever God purposes to happen will happen is what this definition is telling us. Then look at the next slide. It says, this divine, sovereign, benevolent control of all things by God is the underlying premise of everything that is taught in the scriptures. And then then what I love about this, this dictionary is that it actually tells us how we should respond to the doctrine of providence. It says, this should evoke from us not curiosity and speculation, but faith, praise, and submission. That that if you really understand the providence of God, it shouldn't be doubt, it shouldn't be speculation, it shouldn't be bitterness. The only proper biblical response to the providence of God is faith, praise, and submission. And so as we look at this this, this concept, this this promise of of providence, I, I, I want you to see the definition so that as we talk about this, you know that God's providence is God making a provision beforehand. God making a provision beforehand. That's what we mean by it, and that's what we're trying to to say. Okay. So, in light of all that, this morning um, we are going to be looking at one verse, and and the verse the verse that we're going to be looking at today is a very. Well-known, very famous verse. But, but I, at, at first I tried to avoid it because I didn't want to just talk about something that had already been discussed and that many people already had memorized. But the Lord just kept bringing me back to this verse. And the reason why you guys know this verse is because for a lot of you it's on your coffee mugs. And if it's not on your coffee mugs, it's hanging on your wall. And if it's not hanging on your wall, it's at your local Hobby Lobby. Okay, You will see it on multiple items as you walk through Hobby Lobby. And here's what, what we're going to look at. The passage that we're going to be looking at this morning comes from Romans chapter 8, and we're looking at only one verse. Romans 8, verse 28. Romans 8, verse 28. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to, after I read it once, I'm going to have you guys read it with me. Like I said, a lot of you have this already memorized. Maybe for some of you, this is the first time you see this, this passage, this verse. But let me read it first, and then we'll read it together. It says, and we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Let's go ahead and read it together. Ready? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So this morning what we're going to do is we are going to be looking at this verse. We're going to be looking at this Promise, and here's the thing that I want to do. I, 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 there's times where I will sit in front of a passage, and it takes me just a few minutes to figure out the outline and to figure out how I want to preach it. But for some reason, even though this is only one verse, this passage, this sermon took a lot for me to write. I had to do a lot of wrestling with God in this sermon, And, and 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 I'll explain why in a little bit. Essentially, what happened was that as I sat down, I came up with an outline earlier in the week. I thought I was done. And so I was just going to fill in the different details. And so yesterday at midnight, so literally 11 hours ago, uh, I I sit down, I look at my sermon, and I'm like, this isn't what God wants me to say. And so at at midnight, I erased everything, and I wrote the whole sermon again, okay? So I ended up going to bed late, and I don't know how many good decisions I've ever made past midnight, so I don't know if this is going to be a good idea or not. But that's what I feel the Lord called me to do. And, and, and here's why, here's why. Because I was gonna just set the message up, you know, kind of the way I always set up two points or three points, and they all build up and we get to Jesus and hooray, right? But 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 here but here's why here's why I kept wrestling with this because this passage, this this verse, this promise is easily one of the most misused, misunderstood, misapplied promises in all of scripture. And so the more I wrote, wrote like like studied it and, and tried to write on it, the more I realized I'm like, no, but. If people don't really understand this promise, they're not going to apply it correctly. And so I can't just assume that people know what it means because if I assume they, and they know what it they means, they're going to be applying it to things that have nothing to do with it, okay? And so here's essentially what I decided to do. I decided that I would. what I want to do, instead of giving you three truths or, or three steps, what I want to do this morning is I want to give you... I, I literally went from having three points to having six points, okay? And, and so I don't know how long we're going to be here, but that, that's beside the point. Cancel your lunch. Anyway, so, 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 here's, so here's what happened. I, I was looking at this promise. I'm mean, like, here's what I want to do. What I want to do this morning is I want to give you the boundaries. The, I want to give you parameters that, that, will, that will define what this promise actually means so that as you leave today, you know exactly what this passage is saying. There's no assumptions to be made. I want I, I, to, the, the way I saw it, the way I look at it is it's like I want to put guardrails on this promise because there's, there's different cliffs we can fall off of. These, I'm going to put guardrails this morning, six of them in total, that are going to help us to define exactly what this promise and this verse is actually saying. Once we know what it says, then we can apply it correctly, Okay. The, the, the way I, I would describe it is I, I want you to see this promise as a river. And the only way that this river can have all the force it can have is if we put riverbeds on each side. So three of the, three of the boundaries, three of the parameters, three of the guardrails have to do with us. And then the other three have to do with God. And as we set these, these, this, this riverbed, as we set this, these guardrails, the river will flow stronger and more powerfully in your life. Okay. So a lot of that, he, here are the, the six boundaries or parameters that I want to put around this promise so that we can all understand what it actually says. The first one is this. We're going to list all of them first. The first one is that this promise is, only, is for Christians only. Okay, we'll come back to that. The, the other one is that Christians will experience all things, will experience all things. The other one is that Christians, we believers, are called to know the promise and love the maker. The next one is that the Lord cares and is currently working. The fifth one is that the Lord defines biblical terms differently. And then the sixth one is that the Lord is both the maker and the keeper of the promise. And, and, and some of those statements don't really make sense. Part of it is because I want to keep you on your toes. I don't want you to get ahead of me. But all, the other reason why is because I'm super OCD and I needed it all to like descend. Like one needed to be longer than the other one. So I literally like made stuff up so that it would keep going. Like, yeah, like it's, I'm OCD like that. I have problems. Um, I need the promises of God. Amen. So... Um, so, 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 so that's what we're doing, okay? So we're looking at, at these parameters. We're setting up these, these boundaries, these guardrails, in, other, in order to understand what Romans 8.28 actually promises. So, so let's begin with the first boundary, the first guardrail. It is this. This promise, listen to this, is for Christians only. The promise that I just read to you in Romans 8.28 is for Christians only. Now, that's a very controversial thing to say right? And and the reason why that's a controversial thing to say is because the world that we live in, it's all about equality. Everyone gets a fair shot. Everyone gets an equal shake. But, But in light of scripture, in light of this promise, the only people that this promise is true of and true for is Christians. Well, go back to the passage. Let me show you why. There's two things that we, we find out about the people, the particular people that God is making this promise to. The first thing we see, is as in verse 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Okay? So, so that's the first word, and then I'll come back to it in a second. And then the second part is says, who have been called according to his purpose. Okay? So, so what we see there is that by him using those two qualifiers, the passage is saying to us, what, what, what Paul is trying to say to us is that the only people who can receive this promise, the only people who this promise is true of and true for is people who know and believe in Jesus. Why? Because the word love there is actually the word agape, which is the, the unconditional love of God. Listen, the only way that you and I can express and, and, and give God the unconditional love that agape is, is if we first receive that unconditional love from him. That's what First John says, that we love him because he first loved us, right? And so the word love in and of itself, what it, is, what it shows is that we are called to, to, to the, the people that God's talking about here are people who, who actually love Jesus, Okay. That's one qualifier. And then the other word is the word called because the word called in Greek is a very interesting word. It means to welcome someone. It means to invite someone into a relationship. But the relationship that you're welcoming them to, the relationship that you're inviting them into is a deep abiding relationship. And so God only makes this promise to the people who he's called, the people who he's welcomed, the people who he's invited, the people who he's he's pursued. In light of scripture, the only people that, that fall into that category are people who have believed in Jesus. Okay. Because here's why this is so controversial. When you look at this promise, and like I said, in light of the culture that we live in where everything is equal and everything, everyone gets an equal opportunity, well, yeah, that's true, but in light of this passage, it's like a marriage vow. The only way that God can keep his vows to us is if there are his vows made to him. Okay? That, that's what, that's what we're, we're getting at here. But here's what the world wants. See, the world will, will be, non-Christian people will post this on their Twitter account, they'll put this on their Instagram, and they'll just say, hey, hey, look, God's working all things for those who love him. Here, here's the problem with that. The world, wants God, the world wants God's promise, but not God's purpose. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and repeat that. Some, somebody missed that, okay? Because you are, can be included in, in, in the world too, okay? The world wants God's promise for their lives. But not God's purpose for their lives. And what we're going to see later on is that God's purpose is radically different than your purpose. God's purpose is not to give you health. God's purpose is not to make you rich. God's purpose is not to, 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 to get you married. God's purpose is very different from the one that you have. And so the world wants their purpose. I want to keep my purpose, my plan, but I want God's promise. The, the world wants the rewards of the promise without the requirements of the promise. And what, this, what we're seeing in light of this passage is that that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Okay? So the first boundary, the first uh, uh, parameter that I want to set up in order to understand this promise is that this promise is for Christians only. The, The next boundary, the next parameter is that Christians, listen to this, will experience all things. Christians will experience all things. Let's go back to the passage again. It says, and we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him. And the word all there means all. I'm a scholar, what can I say? God works all things. He, here's why this is so important. Because one of the lies, one of the assumptions that, that Christians that believe and, and, and make is, is they think that, oh, once I am walking with God, once I serve God, once I give to God, once I, I, I give my life over to God, once I attend church once a week... Th- God has to bless me, and God owes me. And and no one would say that out loud, right? Like, you wouldn't go to a Bible study and say that, like, oh, God owes me something. I deserve this. No one would actually say that, but deep in our hearts, that's what we believe. We believe, hey, I'm going to church now, God, so bless me. Hey, I'm giving the church now, God, so bless me. Hey, I'm reading the Bible. Look, I'm doing you a favor, God, now bless me. The problem is that's not how Scripture works. As a matter of fact, there's a passage in, 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 in Matthew, I think it is, where, where Jesus says, listen, no, no, no master thanks their slave for doing what they're supposed to do. Oh, wow, thank you so much for reading the Bible. See, see we make the assumption that because I'm doing things for God, God has to do things for me. And so, when we see the word "all things," deep down we wouldn't admit this, but deep down we don't think all things include suffering. We don't think all things includes pain. We don't think all things includes abandonment and abuse. No, no, there's no way that all there's no way that all things. It's only good things that come from God. You don't see that anywhere in the passage. All things are from God. All things are worked together. Because here's the thing. We, we have certain things in our past. We have certain things in our life that, that maybe we've done or that has been done to us. And we'll look back at that and say, no, no, there's no way that that thing can be used by God. Not that thing. All things. Everything. So when you go to God and you make the assumption that God owes you something or you make the assumption that all things means only good things, then when bad things happen, you start getting angry at God for not keeping a promise that he never made to you. How many people in here are mad at God right now for a promise that he never made? That's why the word all things is so important. God is putting all things. God is working out all things. Okay? I, I, I'm not usually a, a like an object lesson person, but, but I decided I wanted to use an object lesson today because I really need you guys to, to understand what, what God means by all things. Okay? Now, I was telling my wife, I'm so spiritual that even my props have to do with God. Look at that. Here I, we, we, here I am to worship. Even my props <laughs> are saved. Okay? But anyways, let me take some of this stuff out. I'm going to explain some stuff to you here. All right. So for those of you who cannot see from where you are, what I have here are ingredients that you would use in baking. Okay? Now, here's the thing about these ingredients. These aren't all the ingredients because I literally just ran into my wife's, like, you know, cabinet and just stole stuff. I don't don't know. I never baked anything (laughs) in my life, right? So... Yeah. Who knows if this makes anything? But just let's just let's pretend that I'm making your favorite dessert. Okay. So I have here some blue sugar. I have here some cinnamon. I have here some baking soda. We have some sprinkles up here. Okay. And then we have some uh, food coloring. Okay. That makes nothing. I get it. Don't don't judge me. Okay. So here here's what here's what I need you to see. This passage, when it says that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, it's like God is baking a, a dessert for you, okay? But you're not going to see the good until the dessert is done. So, 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 so imagine I had you over at my house, and I was going to make you a dessert, and instead of putting all the ingredients together, I, fi- I fed you one ingredient at a time. Taste the sugar. I mean, taste the cinnamon, taste the sugar, taste the baking soda. Says the sprinkles, taste the, how, how was the cake? That's not what the passage says. The passage doesn't say that every ingredient is good. That's what we assume. Like, that's what we tell each other. Like, if your child is, is, is in the process of being single and they can't find a spouse, you say, hey, honey, maybe that person didn't work out, but God has someone for you. Romans 8.28 says that God works all things for good. Really? Is that the promise that your, your child's going to get married? Or if someone has cancer, oh, well, you know, don't worry about it. The cancer is going to disappear because God works all things for good. That's not the promise. And so we're constantly misusing this promise to encourage people with what the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't say that every single ingredient is good. It says that when you get to the end, it will be good. God will use all things, bad things, sad things, in between things for good. So some of you right now you might be in a sugar in a sugar season and your temptation is to think, oh well God must be really happy with me because I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying that's why I'm being blessed right now No, it's not one because God we all know you're not that person, right but two because that's not how God works you receiving good doesn't mean God's blessing you just like you receiving bad doesn't means God's punishing you doesn't mean that it's just the ingredient that he's currently putting in your life. And so our temptation is to, is to look at God's goodness through the lens of our circumstances. And what we're seeing in this passage is that we are to look at our circumstances through the lens of God's goodness. Okay? So, 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 so there's good ingredients and there's so-so ingredients. But some of you right now, you're in the baking soda stage. Some of you right now, the ingredient that God is putting in your life is baking soda. And who likes baking soda? Right? And your temptation is to look at the baking soda and say, God is angry at me. God doesn't care for me. God has forgotten me. Do not judge the cake by one ingredient. Just like you wouldn't eat one ingredient at a time if you came to my house. Do not eat one ingredient at a time and judge God based on the ingredient that he's currently putting in. Do not Let your relationship with God be ruined over baking soda. Don't do it. It's not biblical. And so many of us, our relationship with God is like this. He's happy with me, he's angry with me. He's happy with me, he's angry with me. No, if God's working all things for good, that means good, bad, and in between is from God. And he promises it'll be good, not right now, but at the end. Judge him then because that's what he's up to, amen? Amen. So, the first thing that we see, the first parameter, the first boundary is that this promise is for Christians only. The the second boundary is that Christians will experience all things, not some things, but all things. The next next boundary, the next uh, uh, parameter that I want to establish around this promise is that we, as believers, we are called to know the promise and love the maker. I want you to see that distinction there. We are called to know the promise with our head and we are called to love the maker with our heart. Put the passage back up. In this passage there there are two words that kind of tell us give us our marching orders. We have two marching orders in light of this passage. We are to know and we are to love. We are to know because it says and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. So those are the two things we are being called to do. We are called to know the promise and love the maker here's the problem problem with both of those things we are terrible at both i am terrible at both i don't think i've ever known this promise i feel it sometimes i hope it's true but i don't know this promise you don't know this promise. You know why? Because the word, the Greek word there for know means to understand. It means to comprehend. It means to perceive. It means to remember, to recall. I don't do that with God's promises. You don't do that with God's promises. We just don't. We, we There's a problem here because I don't really know this. I feel it. I hope. I think. But I don't know. And then... The word love, the second thing we're called to do is we are called to love him. And, and like I mentioned earlier, the, the word love there is agape, the, the, the unconditional one-way love of God. We are to love God with agape love. But the only way that I can love God with agape love is if I have first received God's agape love. To the degree that I understand God's agape love, to that same degree, I will respond with agape love. The problem is I don't understand agape love. I live like an orphan. I live like someone who doesn't have an identity. I, I'm constantly looking like a vacuum trying to find people to approve of me and applaud me and notice me and acknowledge me. So if we kept our end of the bargain, this would be a great promise. But we don't. Not even as I'm talking to about it, you're doing it. You're not even doing it right now, let alone in two days. So, so we're, we're, we're called, and, and I, I want to put this different translation. There's this guy, his name is Kenneth West, and he's a, a, a biblical Greek scholar. And he, he takes the Greek and he actually writes it out in English exactly how it is in Greek. Look, look what it says. And we know with an absolute knowledge that all things are constantly working together, resulting in good for those who are loving God. The word there in, in the Greek is in the present tense. It's not those who love God once, right? But those who are loving God. It's present tense. Those who are loving God right now. But, but it makes sense that it's in the present tense, right? Because you can't have a relationship with someone unless you're loving them in the moment, right? I can't go to my wife and say, man, back in 96, I loved you so much, girl. You had my heart back then. That's how you get slapped, okay? So it makes sense that it's the present tense because we have to be loving him. So we're called to know with an absolute knowledge that all things are constantly working together and we are called to be loving God with agape one, one way unconditional love I don't know about you but I'm terrible at that I'm really really bad at that and if anytime if you've ever gone to a church and they've in any way have told you you can do this they're lying to you They didn't study their bibles because you can't and I can't. We can't. We are called to know and love. And what I love about both of those words is that it just shows you the degrees to which God wants this promise to be in your life. God wants you to know it in your head and to believe it in your heart. He, he, he goes after your intellect and your emotions. He, he wants you fully, God wants you. That's how God wants this promise. So a lot of us have this, this memorized in our head, but it hasn't fallen from our head to our heart. Romans 8.28, you guys have heard me use this illustration before, but it's like when you go to a a vending machine and you put a quarter in, you put some money in, and then the thing that you went to go buy is stuck. So you put the money in, right? It just hasn't dropped yet. You got to knock the machine a little bit. It's in your head, but it's not really affecting your heart. Hasn't dropped yet. We need to love God with our head and with our heart. We need to know the promise and love the Maker. So, those first three parameters, those first three boundaries have to do with us. The, the, le- the next three have to do with God. This is the other side of the riverbed. The first one is this The Lord, listen to this, the Lord cares and He is currently working. Okay? It's a very important boundary I want to establish here, a very important parameter. The Lord actually cares. And he is currently working. Let's, let's go back to the passage. There's two things that kind of tip us off and, 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 and allow us to see that God cares. The first thing is that it says that, he, he, that in all things, he works for the good of those who love him, right? But, but when, when you look at the, the, the word there, um, uh, called, the word, the word called there, remember what we said it means? It means that God has welcomed you. He has, he has welcomed you into a relationship with him. God cares because the word they're called means he welcomed you. He invited you into a deep, abiding relationship. So the first thing you need to know, guys, listen, God cares about what you're going through. Listen, if you believe that lie, that's going to destroy you. If you believe that God doesn't care, Satan won. If you really in your heart of hearts believe God doesn't care, he doesn't care for me. He doesn't, clearly he's not aware. Clearly he's not doing anything. Clearly he's at at, at best indifferent. You will never be able to access what this promise actually has for you. That's what the word they're called means. It means to be invited, to be welcomed into a loving, abiding relationship. God cares for you deeply. You have to believe it. But the other thing I want you to see See, it's not just that God cares, but God is currently working. It says there, and we know that in all things God works. Let's go to the the West translation again. Here's what it actually says in the Greek. And we know with an absolute knowledge that in all things, that that all things are constantly working together. So, So in the Greek, it's in the present tense. In other words, God is not, he not might work, or past tense, he did work. He is currently, constantly working right now. God's doing something in your situation even if it feels like he's not he's working and the word there work means to be attentive it means to be engaged god is fully attentive and fully engaged in what you are going through even though it might not seem like he is he is according to this passage but what happens with us is that when god seems we we always this is my art and I know this is my temptation we we are tempted to equate god's silence with god's absence God's silence does not equal God's absence. Because God, according to this passage, is never absent. God is constantly working to bring things together for good. He's constantly doing it. But, that, but that's the danger, though, right? The danger is, uh, God, you haven't said anything. God, you haven't done anything, at least from my angle. But God is working. Actually, there's a passage in the book of Daniel where where Daniel was praying for God to show up. And then this angel shows up. And when he talks to to Daniel, he says, listen, we heard you from when you originally started praying. But I was busy fighting this this prince of darkness over here. That's why it took me so long to get here. So from from Daniel's perspective, it just seemed like God wasn't answering. God was taking a, a work break. But he was. He was working. God was doing something. That, that's what you need to understand, that as, as, we, as, as, as we go through these periods of silence, we have to understand that silence doesn't mean absence. And I'll give you, I'll give you two examples from Scripture. I'll, I'll give you three, actually. In the, in, in the Gospels, you have the story about John the Baptist. And in, in, in his story, John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. He's his forerunner. But John the Baptist's story ends terribly because he's in jail, right, And you better, even though the Bible doesn't tell us that people were praying for him, people were praying for John the Baptist to get out. No one wanted John the Baptist to die, right? People were thinking, if John could be out, imagine all the things that John can do for Jesus in the world, right? So so John the Baptist is in jail. People pray for him to be delivered, and yet at the end of his life, he is beheaded and killed by Herod. Fast forward a few chapters in Scripture, and Peter's in prison. Just as many people praying for Peter... And God decides to answer by getting Peter out of jail. Now, was God any less present when John died than when Peter was released? No. He was working in both situations. See, that's the thing about it. We think that God answering is him answering the way we want it to be answered. God has an answer. It just might not be the one you want. So God was equally working in John the Baptist's situation as he was in Peter's situation. One was beheaded and the other one was delivered. And I'm going to take, take it up a notch. And I was processing this this week as I was praying about this, that God could be working even when it doesn't seem like he's working, even when he is silent. Can you imagine, if, for those of you who are mothers here, think about how much you, if you're, if you, however many kids you have, think about how much you love your children. And I want you to take that into take that how much you love your child, and I want you to, to, to try to imagine how Mary, the mother of Jesus, felt when Jesus was betrayed, when Jesus was spit on, when Jesus was scourged, when Jesus was crucified. You know what I can guarantee you was happening? Mary was on her knees from the moment her son got arrested to the moment her son died, Mary was praying for her son to be delivered, and think about it. A lot of times, the reason why we ask God to do stuff is because we're like, God, God, if you can just save my prodigal, God, if you can just cure my cancer, God, if you can just take me out of debt, th- I, th- it would just be such a beautiful story. So many people can be blessed. So many people can be helped. You just you don't even know, God, how many people can be helped if this happened. If anyone ever had that argument, it was Mary. Because he's like, Lord, if you deliver my son, how many more people can he save? How many more people can he deliver? How many people more people can he heal? And God's answer to Mary was to kill her son. And I heard one pastor put it this way. Mary would have done exactly what God did if she would have known everything he knew. God took the most inhumane, most quote-unquote purposeless death ever, the worst moment in human history, and God turned that evil into good. Listen, if God can do that with the cross of Christ, do you think he can do that with your marriage? Do you think that maybe he can do that with your children? Or with your sickness? Or with your anxiety? And so what we see is that God is currently working. He is constantly working. The working might not look the way you think it should look. But, but even in Mary's case, what seemed like inaction, what seemed like cruelty from God was the most compassionate, most amazing, most glorious thing he could have done. But she doesn't know that ahead of time. That's why I heard one person put it that Philip Yancey in his book on prayer, he says that faith is believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. So what we got to do. It's the only way. Let's go to the next one. The next parameter, the next boundary that I want to establish here. Listen to this. The Lord defines biblical terms differently from us. Okay? The Lord defines biblical terms differently from how you and I do. Here's why this is important. In this passage, there are two words that if you don't define biblically will totally change the meaning of this this passage. Okay? Okay? The first word is good, and the second word is purpose. Here's what a lot of us do. A lot of us read this passage, and we decide, oh, I know what good is, and I know what God's purpose is. The problem is is that if your definition of good and your definition of purpose doesn't coincide with God's definition of good and purpose, then who cares what you think? So many Christians will come around each other be like, say, oh, God wants your good. So if you're, if you're single, God wants you to be married. I don't see that. If you're sick, God wants you to be healed. I don't see that. I don't see that anywhere in the passage. And so the problem is, is when you bring your own definition to good and you bring your own definition to purpose, then you can make this passage mean whatever you want it to mean. We, we have to let God be the one that determines what's good and what his purpose is. And I don't have this verse here because it's, it's very theologically deep, so I don't want to get into the weeds. But the verse right after in Romans 8, verse 29, it says that, that God, for, for God has done all these things in order to conform us into the image of his son. So you want to know what God's purpose is? You want to know what God defines as good? You becoming more like Jesus. That's all God's up to. So so many times people are so confused about what God's will is for my life. What is God doing? I don't know. God is either in the process of bringing you to Jesus, if you don't know him, or making you like Jesus, if you do. That's God's definition of good. That's God's purpose for your life. So, So God's not out for your happiness. God is after your holiness. You need to get this, guys, because if your definition of good, if your definition, if your purpose for your life is to be successful, God's not in the business of making you successful. If your definition of good is you being healthy or you being prosperous, that's not God's definition. So the best thing you can do is redefine good based on how God views good, redefine your purpose based on what God's purpose is, and things will go a lot better for you. Usually because if God's purpose, listen to this. If God's purpose is to make you successful or to make you healthy or to, or to make you prosperous, then you wouldn't be going through suffering. You wouldn't, suffering and pain wouldn't make any sense. It wouldn't fit. Like the whole paradigm would, would cave in on itself, right? But listen, if God's purpose is to make you more like Jesus, then suffering can make you more like Jesus. Cancer can make you more like Jesus. A prodigal can make you more like Jesus. Anxiety can make you more like Jesus. Depression can make you more like Jesus. Job loss can make you more like Jesus. See, the only way that all things can be good for good is if the only purpose is to become like Jesus. If the purpose is anything other than becoming like Jesus, then there's no way that all things can be made for good, used for good. They're connected. They're connected. That's what we see here in this passage. And then lastly, here's the, the, the final thing is this. The sixth and final parameter boundary that I want to set around this promise is this. Listen, the Lord is both the maker and the keeper of the promise. The Lord, th- this parameter is very important. I saved it for last because it, it, if you don't get this one, the promise makes no sense. Okay? The, 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 this, the, the, the Lord, listen to this, is both the maker and the keeper of the Of the promise. Here's why it has to be this way. Here's why it has to be this way. Here's why you can't bring anything to the table, okay? We saw last week, remember what we were doing last week in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we discovered that apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. In other words, you know what a dead person brings to the table? Nothing. Okay? So so we can't even get into the into the covenant. We can't even get into this, this promise with God because we are spiritually dead. In other words, we can't even start the promise. We can't even earn the promise because we are spiritually dead. But then it goes a step further because we find out in this passage that not only can we not earn the promise, but even once we get brought into the promise, we can't maintain our part of the promise because we don't know God completely and we don't love God fully. You don't, I don't, we don't. And so there's a problem here. We can't earn the promise. And then once we're even in the promise, we can't maintain our part of the promise. So the question is how in the world is this promise true of us? How can we rest in this promise? How can I actually let this promise define me, comfort me, and help me if I don't actually deserve it? Because as wonderful as this promise is, it's not logical. It doesn't make sense because we don't deserve it. We don't deserve this. And so there has to be something, there has to be some disconnect. There has to be something missing here because we don't actually deserve this promise. Nothing in us deserves this promise. And so if you're sitting here today and you're like, oh, wow, well, then how do I, how can I possibly, is this promise even legitimate then? Can I actually turn to it in time of need? Because there's nothing in me that earns this. And if you feel like there's nothing that you bring to the table, then that's exactly where you need to be. Okay, listen, listen. Because the only reason why this promise is true of you and the only reason why this promise can be accessible to you is because someone else kept the, side, the other side of the promise. Okay? And that person wasn't you. And that person wasn't me. There, there's a person who came down to earth and throughout his entire life, he knew with full certainty that all things were working for good. He knew that he loved God with his entire being. He knew what he was called to. He knew what God's purpose was. That person wasn't you. That person wasn't me. That person was Jesus Christ. And so the only reason why we get access to this promise is not because of our name, is not because of our record, is not because of our credentials, is not because of what we bring to the table, but it's because of what Jesus brings to the table. The only reason why this can be true of us is not because we are in ourselves, but because we are in Christ. And because it's true of him, it can be true of us. And what's crazy is that even though Jesus is the only person who earned this promise, even though Jesus is the only person who kept his end of the bargain, at the end of his life, the only person who deserved God to deliver him, the only the only person who actually deserved to let all things work out for good at the cross got the exact opposite. At the cross, Jesus got the anti-promise so that you and I might get the actual promise. And so at the cross, God treated Jesus the way you deserved so that by faith in Jesus, God might treat us the way he deserved. It's the only way this promise works. There's actually a story in the book of Genesis where God shows up to Abraham and says, I want to make a covenant with you. I want to bless you so that you can be the father of many nations. See, the problem with that, though, was that in those days, the only way you can make an actual covenant, if you and I were making a covenant back in Abraham's day, we needed to go get an animal, and then we needed to cut the animal in half. And here's what we would do. I would walk through the animal, and you would walk in between the animal. And here's what we would be saying. If one of us breaks the covenant, then we have to be cut in half like the animal. That's how we kept the promise. We didn't sign a contract. I, I walk through the animal, between the animal. You walk in between the animal. And if any of us break e- any, either side of the contract, then that's what happens to us. We get broken in two. Okay? But here's how the story goes. God, the Bible says that God puts Abraham to sleep. And as Abraham is sleeping, there's an animal that's broken in half. The only person that walks through the carcass, in between the carcass, is God. Now, Now think about what that means. God is saying to Abraham and to us that not only is he the maker of the promise, but he's the keeper of the promise. Here's what this means that if Abraham fails, which he will, the person that has to be broken in half is God, not Abraham. And we failed. And so Jesus was broken in half. God is the maker. And the keeper. It's the only way it works. It's the only way this promise can be true. Listen, there's two things. There are two barriers that will keep you from believing this promise. And and not just, not in a month from now, but tomorrow. There are two barriers that will keep you from believing this promise. The first barrier is God is not good enough. The second barrier is I'm not good enough. So we either doubt God's goodness or we acknowledge our badness, okay? So, so, so the first barrier that Satan, the first thing that Satan's going to use, the first lie is God's going to say, there's no way Romans 8.28 is true because God's not really that good, right? The second lie he'll say is, okay, even if it is true and God is that good, you're not that good. So either God's not good enough, right? Or you're not good enough. But if this is true, then Romans 8.28, it obliterates both of those accusations at their root, Because at the cross, we see both the goodness of God and the badness of our sin. They're both both obliterated in the same place. So when Satan shows up and says, hey, there's no way God's going to keep Romans 8.28 because God's not good enough. "Uh, Have you seen the cross lately? Listen, if God paid a billion dollars for a gift, am I going to doubt him on the wrapping paper? Really? If God brought me through the ultimate storm, I'm going to doubt him in a drizzle? And then the second accusation, one is God's not good enough. That's not true in light of the cross. But the second one is you're not good enough. Satan shows and says you're bad. You're not good enough. And what you say is instead of defending yourself, you'd be like, bro, you don't even know the half of it. Have you seen the cross? Did you see what I did to my Lord and Savior? It's way worse than what you're accusing me of. Both accusations are killed at the root when you understand this promise. Romans 8.28 is, 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 the cross is literally the embodiment of Romans 8.28. We know God will be faithful in this storm because God was faithful in that storm. The providence of God, listen to this, is most clearly seen on the cross, not on Christ's behalf, but on our behalf. So here's my prayer for you this week and this month, and this year. My prayer is that Romans 8.28 would be a verse that's not just on your coffee mugs or hanging on your walls or even memorized in your head, but that Romans 8.28 would be a gospel promise that's engraved in your heart. Amen.